There is no doubt but that Ireland's neutrality during World War II was a bone of contention to Winston Churchill. By offering condolences to the German ambassador on the death of Adolf Hitler, de Valera was later accused of showing allegiance to the devil. In his Victory in Europe speech on May 13, 1945, Churchill let his opinions be known on de Valera and Irish neutrality. Three days later, Eamon de Valera replied to Churchill in a strongly worded broadcast, sprinkled also with diplomacy in case of further alienating relations between both countries. Mr. Churchill makes it clear that in certain circumstances he would have violated our neutrality and that he would justify his action by Britain's necessity. It seems strange to me that Mr. Churchill does not see that this, if accepted, would mean that Britain's necessity would become a moral code and that when this necessity was sufficiently great, other people's rights were not to count. But what was Ireland to do with German airmen or sailors who landed on our shores either intentionally or unintentionally? Were they prisoners of war or were they guests of the nation? Here in the South, many were firstly taken to Collins Barracks in Cork, where they were treated to genuine Irish hospitality, seemingly. Soon afterwards, they were transferred to the Curragh camp, where the commanding officer there, Colonel Thomas McNally, regarded them as POWs and treated them as such. This evening on Where the Road Takes Me, we bring you the first of a two-part programme entitled The Story of the Lightkeeper's Daughters and U-260. Our story centres around the scuttling of a German submarine, U-260, three nautical miles south of Glandor Harbour, on Monday, March 12th, 1945. It's an intriguing story of various theories, possibilities and babies. Good evening and welcome. Thank you for joining us on Where the Road Takes Me. The main theme of both these programmes centres around the scuttling of German U-boat U-260 on the 12th of March 1945. Mary McCarthy now lives in West Cork. She was born Mary Glanville in County Down in 1932. Her father Sam was a lightkeeper, which meant at the time that the family could never settle in any one place permanently. So County Down would not remain home for young Mary Glanville for very long. I have no recollection whatsoever of County Down. I've been to have a look at where I think I lived for possibly maybe two years there. Now, my brother and sister were also born there, so there were three of us in the family, brother, oldest, then me, and then my sister. And my father was stationed as a lighthouse keeper at possibly a lighthouse called Hall Boland, which is in, I think it's in Carlingford Lock. And he was moved from there. This was the lighthouse keeper's life then was a lot of moving uh, from station to station. And we were moved then from there up to Inishone to a place called either Shrove or Struve, whichever way you like to pronounce it, in 1934, probably. I'm not too sure of the dates now. Anyhow, he was stationed there at a lighthouse there, there were two lighthouses there at the time and he was an assistant keeper at one of them and there was another lighthouse way down what we called an avenue, it was a plain ordinary road, but we called it an avenue. And that's where I started school. All three of us, my brother, my sister, myself, all started school there in a little village school, very ordinary little two-room school. 
and we went to school there. Now, there's a connection in a way in starting school because Gerald Butler, who is now an attendant keeper and looks after the galley head, his mother, as a young girl, was also at the same lighthouse because her father was a lighthouse keeper. He was Fitzgerald. And so she took my sister and I to school. My sister was younger than me, but we started school together. It was a small school, not huge. And so we started there. I don't know who took my brother. Anyway, we went to school there and then we were moved to Cove in 1939. Now, the, the life of a lighthouse keeper then was he could be moved. He would get a certain amount of notice to say you are being from the Irish Lights who were stationed in Dublin and Dunleary. They'd get a notification to say you'd be going to such a place. So you packed up and you left. And how did your father or your mother feel about that? I think they enjoyed it very much, actually. Yeah. You were seeing the country anyway. They were seeing the country. The other thing about that is, of course, because most lighthouses had dwellings for the keepers, furnished, nicely furnished, but n- no luxury. But you'd be safe and you'd be warm and you'd be all this. So we had very little possessions except our own bits and pieces and this kind of thing. And my father had trained as a carpenter. I think he finished when he was quite young, about 17 or so. So he made these wooden boxes and that's where everything went and off you went. Anyhow, we were moved then to Cove in 1939. We came into Cove around April. Mary and her family spent five years at Shrove Lighthouse on Inishon, where Loch Foyle meets the Wild Atlantic in North County Donegal. And then, in 1939, they were on the move again, not only from one end of the country to the other, but from one very rural location to a busy port that Churchill had his eyes on. The Glanvilles were heading for Cove in County Cork. My mother had relatives there. It was a complete contrast. When you were a small girl, age seven, I think I was, to me the houses looked huge and there was hills and there was the big cathedral and there was the sea, of course, and all to do with the sea. So we came into Cove in 1939 and we started school and then on the holidays, we did whatever we did in the holidays. But straight after the holidays, the war began. And I remember coming home from school, my mother had been picking blackberries. And she said, of course, we didn't quite know what she meant, but there was a feeling of unease in Cove, I don't know how long it lasted. We had to be fitted for gas masks, which terrified my mother. We were down. Now, Cove is a long, kind of a rambling place, and there was a town hall somewhere, and we would fit it for gas masks there, and then they were kept there. We never saw them again. I don't even know what became of them. And there was this uneasy feeling. I'm not sure had we blackout. And I think it might have been something. You see, you can read it up when you're older. I think it might have been something to do with De Valera and Churchill and wanting Cork as a port, which had been, of course, in British hands. One blah, blah. Huge, huge naval Yes, history. and the naval had, yeah. all that had been there. And whatever was going on between the two of them, suddenly all this tension kind of eased. Then rationing came in. The only fruit you could get was homegrown apples. Things like bananas disappeared, oranges. So then we lived in Cove, went to school in Cove to nuns, met nuns for the first time. All these big houses. Absolutely loved Cove, actually, living in Cove. And then after that, I made my first communion in Cove. My sister did the following year. Michael kind of disappeared. He seemed to make friends. That was my brother. He made friends very quickly, and we made friends quickly. Uh, in school and all the rest of it. Now, the funny thing is when we were leaving Donegal, Struve and Donegal, to go to Cove, we knew there were some kind of changes going on in the lights. And when we were moved to Cove as a station, it was the Smithbank Lighthouse out in, I don't know if you know, a little roundy thing out in Cork Harbour. We knew that that was going to be automated. It was one of the first, I think, maybe. And I mightn't be accurate. Anyway, so here we are in Cove, wondering when are we going to be moved again because Cove is going to be automated. So there we were for three years wondering.
German submarine U-260 was commissioned on March 14, 1942, and began her first patrol on the 10th of September of that year. Between then and when she was scuttled in March of 1945, she took part in a total of nine patrols. But if you look closely at her service record, her lack of action is easily identifiable, especially when Klaus Becker took over command from Captain Lieutenant Herbertus Porkhold. So what exactly was she doing during these patrols? And what caused the crew to decide to scuttle her close to the West Cork coast on the 12th of March 1945? Later in the programmes we will look at two main theories for this. One, that she was hit by a mine. And the second theory is that she hit a rock, which had yet to be identified and was not on Admiralty charts and would not be for another 33 years afterwards. To find out more about U-260, I go to meet Brendan Cahill. Brendan is a former diver and a member of the Coast Guard in Towhead. He has a long-time interest in U-260 and has dived on the site on many occasions over the past 20 years or so. The submarine was first discovered, accidentally so, by Colin Barnes while fishing off Glandore in 1978. Colin was actually trawling in the area, I believe, and then he actually pulled a, a magnetometer, like, which is a, an underwater metal detector, across the area, and he discovered that there was a large metal object on the bottom. And he then got a local diver, I think Joe Barry. Joe dived on the hit that they got, and it discovered that it was a U-boat, and it was subsequently identified as the U-260 World War II Type 7C U-boat. After that, it's been dived a number of times since, it's actually in quite good condition. It's about three, just over three nautical miles south of Glandore Harbour. It's quite deep. It's in between 40 and 45 metres of water, which is pretty much at the limit of the recreational diving range. And unfortunately, it, it demonstrated that a couple of years ago where two divers who were actually diving on the wreck died while diving on the wreck. So it is not a wreck to be dived with impunity. It is quite deep and it can be very, very dark and it is quite a challenging dive. The bottom is sandy, so would that explain why not much damage was done to it? Yeah, the bottom surrounding the U-boat is actually sandy. It's actually quite close to a ridge of rocks nearby. As I say, because it's so deep, the weather wouldn't have had as large an effect on it as it would have had in relation to wrecks that would be closer to the surface. So it is in comparatively good condition. Now, over a period of time and over a period that we've been diving on the wreck, you can actually see it deteriorating. Obviously, a, a metal object in seawater is not going to—it's not going to last forever. But fortunately, we've been lucky enough to see it in a very, very good condition, and it is a very imposing sight to dive on. Yeah, I've often wondered what you was for, and you've told me that it's undersea boot. Boot, yeah, yeah, the German word for basically an, an undersea boat, boat yeah. a submarine. By now, the Glanville family had settled in nicely to Cove. But lightkeepers and their families could never settle in nicely anywhere on a permanent basis. Besides, Mary's father Sam was about to be promoted to principal keeper, and the Spitbank Lighthouse was about to be automated, so their time in a cove was about to come to an end. On this occasion, it was back up the country again to Rockabill off the coast of Dublin. According to Scarry's Historical Society, Rockabill lies about five kilometres off the shore in an easterly direction, and it's clearly visible from Scarry's. The name comes from the Irish name for the rock. Corrig da Viola, meaning Two Lips Rock. A light was sought for the rock by the Drogheda Harbour Commissioners back in 1837, and they stated that the shipping which frequented Drogheda would cheerfully pay a toll towards a light on Rockabill. The Glanville family were now heading there. And we went up anyway, and we packed up from Cove, and went up, and the thing was then when we were going from Cove to Rockabill, where are we going to go from there? Because we knew this was not going to, 
he wasn't going to be there long. So we were about 10 months. We went up in possibly April. I remember it was my birthday. Somebody gave me a box of paints for a birthday present in Skerries. And we were in Skerries, four keepers there. The lighthouse is out. It's out on a rock. It's very well known for its rosy turn and all this. I never saw that until I saw it from the train when I was an adult. Anyhow, there was my father and we saw him very little, of course, because they did so much time on the rock, then ashore and then out. And we got on with life. We were children. We were enjoying ourselves. And then we were told, you're moving again. And that was then the, the move to West Cork, to the Galley Head. We'd be going to the Galley Head. He'd be a principal keeper. And it meant, of course, a rise in salary, which is no harm at all. <laughs> like, you have to live like <laughs> My mother was slightly disappointed because she felt, oh dear me, now, now at the time, it's hard to picture a place. Now, this was now, we're now in 1942. And you knew nothing about the Galley Head? N- no, but my father, the first... <laughs> He had a strange sense of humour. He was very philosophical, you see, and his own father had been a lighthouse keeper, so he knew what it was like. He had been a seafaring man. He knew what it was like to be on the move kind of thing. He had been a private soldier in the First World War and survived it and all this. But the first thing, one of the first things he did was he sang, you know, that ballad about Skibreen. That's the cruel reason why I left old Skibreen. The famine song. The famine song, exactly. Yeah. My mother was disappointed from the point of view. Like, it's, you can't picture isolation in Ireland anymore, not really. Because most people have motor cars or they can get from wherever they are. And here we were, 10 miles from Clonakilty at least. And what about school? And of course, the main thing, now, my sister and I never felt anything about this. It was all about Michael and schooling, because Michael, my brother, would go to see We knew he'd get primary education. What about second level? And not everybody could get second level, even if they, I don't know whether it was a privilege in those days. Anyway, Michael would need second level because, because, because he'd be going to see, and mathematics and what have you. So it was all about Michael. And we always felt, myself and Martha, well, we won't matter so much. Girls kind of, they get through things, which was a strange approach. But anyway, so there we were at the galley head. My mother slightly disappointed. Michael, now when we got to the galley head, 10, 9, 9, 10 and 12 were our ages. Am I right? I have to do my sums. <laughs> it's the first of two programmes which looks back at the scuttling of German submarine U-260 on Monday night, the 12th of March, 1945, off the coast. The events are seen through the eyes of a young 12-year-old girl at the time. Mary Glanville, now Mary McCarthy, was the daughter of Sam Glanville, who was stationed at the Galley Head Lighthouse when all crew aboard the German submarine came ashore. Our story continues after the break. (music) 